Acts chapter 3, Sunday morning, studying the book of Acts together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now, and they'll hand you a Bible if you wave to them, and it'll be marked right to our passage this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. And so he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And so he, leaping up, Stood, uh, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all of the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. Let's pray together. Jesus, you told us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And we thank you, Lord, for this Bible. We thank you for this book. We thank you for your word, Lord, and for the necessary thing that it does in our lives as your children more necessary than daily food. And we ask, Lord, that you would take each of our individual lives, take us as a church body this morning into your hands, and we pray that you would minister the beauty and the eternal truths that are found in these 11 verses into our relationship with you, Lord, and into your calling upon our lives as your people in this world at this time in human history. We pray, Lord, for that personal work of your Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I think that most Christians have a very, very deep desire to be used by God in some powerful way to impact this world for God and in order to make a difference for him and the kingdom of God. I think that within our hearts there's a desire for revival. There's a desire to see multitudes of people saved. There's the desire to be a blessing to all of the hurting and needy people around us. But I also think that very often we talk ourselves out of that kind of a possibility for our lives because we tend to think that big things only happen at the far end of a big beginning. 
that somehow to be able to reach the multitudes of the world or to be a great impact within our community or within the world or to impact other lives, that that always lies at the far end of some kind of great organization or great minds coming together, great resources, whether human or otherwise, and planning and all of these things coming together. And then always something great happens at the far end of some gigantic beginning. But sometimes these things have very, very small beginnings. And I want to talk about that this morning. And to begin by taking note of some of the details surrounding the healing by God of this lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. We notice that the lame man's condition is described to us, and it's important to the Holy Spirit, and so it's important to us. He describes the lame man's condition, his physical condition. He's lame, and the cause of his Lameness is given to us, and it's due to some deformity that has to do with his feet and also with his ankles. We're told in verse 7, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, being a doctor specific in this regard. We're further told that he had been this, in this condition from his mother's womb, from birth. He has never known what it is to be able to walk. He has never known what it is to be able to jump. He has never known what it is to climb a wall as a young boy and to jump off the other side of it. He's never played hide-and-seek. He is never like any athlete at any level knows what it's like to run and to plant a foot, whether on a football field or on a basketball court, and then to go in the opposite direction. These are sensations. These are life experiences that he has never, ever known, not even one time in his life. His daily situation as a result of his lameness is that without the ability to walk, certainly in those days, it rendered you virtually helpless. There were no wheelchairs in those days, no walkers. There were no roads that were uh, made in those days that would have made those kind of instruments that are so common today of any use at all in, in those days. And not being able to walk in those days meant that he would have had to be carried everywhere. Again, as Luke notes, this man has never known in every single day of his life, he has never known what it is not to be a burden to somebody. And at birth, when his children looked at the deformity of his feet and his ankles, they knew instantly that a very, very difficult life lay out before him. And now some 40 years later, he knows it too. And every day he is carried by others, by family or friends, to one of the main entrances to the Jewish temple known as the beautiful gate in order to beg for his substance, in order to receive enough money to eat for that day and then to repeat the cycle again the next day and so forth and so forth throughout all of the days of his life. And his physical condition didn't allow for him to earn a living, and so he did what he could. And his entire existence revolved around the entrance to that temple known as the Beautiful Gate. And it was called the Beautiful Gate because it was exactly that, the most beautiful of all of the gates that was uh, provided entrance to the temple through Herod's uh, rebuilding and ornamentation related to that ancient Jewish temple. 
We're told that the doors, the gates to that temple, beautiful, 75 feet high, imagine, made of Corinthian brass. And the ornamentation that was on those gates was so great that uh, all of the other gates that were plated with gold and silver paled in comparison in terms of the beauty. And, the Jew, and all around the world we see is the, the situation of this lame man repeated again and again outside of all of the great cathedrals and all other religious buildings. You can find lame people and beggars asking for alms from those who are coming and going from those places. And I suppose that if a person must beg for a living, if given a choice, I would certainly do it if I was in that kind of a position. You might as well choose a beautiful place to do your begging. But the main reason that that kind of a site was chosen is because typically, both historically and today, religious crowds are by and large generous crowds. You have men and women who are entering in through those gates and they loved God. God had prospered them. God had blessed them. They had more than they needed for their own sustenance and knowing that God had been good to them. Their hearts large towards God and large towards their fellow man would be very, very prone to take money and give it to the poor and those who are less fortunate than, than them sitting at the gate. And then at the other end of the spectrum related to people entering into religious establishments and certainly the temple in that day, you would have had men and women certainly men coming through who had not had so great a day or so great a week. Sin had filled their day or filled their week and still under the weight of that sin and the conviction and the wrongdoing between them and God, they would be prone themselves to give something to the poor in the hopes that maybe it might buy some kind of favor with God in the light of the estrangement of their relationship with God. There's a man by the name of W.H. Davies, and he was known as a, the tramp poet and from England, and uh, he traveled all of England as, as a hobo and as a tramp, deliberately so, and the United States of America. And in the course of his life, he would write poems concerning the difficulty and the hardship of life uh, and in, in the world. And somebody got a hold of his writings and noticed that he had a tremendous gift for encapsulating uh, all of that related to life, and he became famous late in his life. But in his life as a beggar and as a traveler and as a hobo, one of his fellow uh, friends told him that whenever he came into a new town, that what he needed to do was to find a church spire with a cross on it and then to begin to beg in that area. So it's nothing new in human history. We're told further in verse 1 that two of the apostles, Peter and John, are making their way to the temple at the hour of prayer. And we're told specifically it was the ninth hour, which according to the Jewish uh, manner of measuring time was three in the afternoon. The Jews do, did not and do not to this day measure the day as we do from midnight to to noon and then from noon to midnight. They measured a day from six in the evening until six in the morning, six in the morning until six in the evening. And so the ninth hour would have been uh, three o'clock 
in the afternoon. And traditionally, a Jewish man would go to the temple three times in the course of the day in order to pray, once in the morning at the time of the morning sacrifice, again at three in the afternoon at the time of the afternoon sacrifice, and then later in the day at sunset. The healing of the lame man is a beautiful record given to us. He asks of alms of Peter and John, we're told in verse 3. He doesn't have, and you, we realize as we kind of put ourselves in the scene, and the scene is so vivid in its description, it, uh, even a person that's largely incapable of planning themselves in the middle of something that they're reading can do it here. I mean, the, the words that jump out of the page, and here he is, he's been put once again in that place uh, before the temple. He has no expectation that this day is going to be different than any other of his days in the course of his 40 years. And so he's planted there in that place, and all he's hoping for is enough money to be given to him to merely exist for another day to again repeat the whole cycle the next day. And Peter and John then come in through that entrance. He asked them of alms, and they stopped, we're told in verse 4, and they fixed their eyes on him. And, then the, and they then asked him to do the same with them. They said, look on us there in verse 4. And I think that perhaps the beggar was saying, you know, money for the poor, money for the lame, or whatever it might be, just repeating the phrase kind of mindlessly, as I suspect you might end up doing after 40 years of doing this. And Peter snaps him out of it by saying, look at us. And the lame man then gave them his attention and ex surely expecting nothing more than to just receive some money from them. I would suspect, as I have watched kind of the uh, begging uh, go on in different places in the world, I've watched it at some of the great cathedrals around the world in the course of traveling. I watch it happen around in the streets of Modesto as you do the same. And I suspect that in this whole situation of begging, that if I am begging for alms or I'm begging for resources, that if I can gain the eye contact of someone who has resources that I need, that that's a tremendous step in the right direction. Uh, I'm sure that if a person is begging, <clears throat> they know right away the person that looks, <clears throat> excuse me, in the opposite direction from them that there's no hope of receiving anything from them. The only hope is going to come from someone who gives them some kind of eye contact. And then surely a person's hope in terms of receiving some kind of alms is uh, further excited or further elevated when that person that has eye contact with you then initiates a conversation with you. All of these developments, what's happening between the beggar and the apostles is, has, is pointing toward a very exciting uh, possibility here uh, for the beggar as both of these things are established, both eye contact and conversation. And then Peter speaks to him, silver and gold have I none. And I think the man's heart probably sunk at that particular point. 
then get out of the way and make room for somebody that has some silver and gold. I mean, this is the, the, after the morning sacrifice, this is the second big rush of the day. I've got to get something out of this. And so don't be looking me in the eye and beginning a conversation with me if you don't have any silver and gold. But then Peter went on and said, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus and of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then Peter took him, we're told in verse 7, by the right hand and lifted him up, not in order to strengthen his feet, not in order to produce the miracle, but in order to encourage his faith and for him to practically discover what Jesus had done for him. And the man then received this healing in his ankles and in his feet. And the response is given to us in verse 8. He begins to leap and he stands and he walks and he enters the temple with them. And then he walks some more, we're told, and he leaps some more and he praised God. I mean, there's a joy that's going on and encapsulated in the passage that is beyond words. You imagine what he's feeling, the sensation in his feet the sensation in his ankles. But all of that is paling in comparison to what he is feeling in his heart and in his mind, the gratitude that he's feeling toward God, that a miracle has happened in his life. And as degree by degree, he's coming to realize that his entire life has changed, not for a day, but his entire life has changed now by this miracle as he's standing and leaping and walking for the first time in his life. And as he's doing all of this, hopping and skipping and jumping, wherever he wished, where did he go? We're told in the passage that he accompanied Peter and John and moving forward through that gate and into the area of the temple, an indication that more than a physical healing has taken place in his life. Someone has said that every miracle in the Bible is also a parable, and I think that that's true. And I think that God's miracles are more than parables, but I think they are at least parables intended to teach each and every one of us something about God, or why would he record them in the Bible? And here we have a man lame from his very birth, born in this condition, unable to walk physically, unable to leap, unable as a result to experience the life of joy as others were experiencing it, unable to change himself, unable to cure himself or help himself. His need couldn't be helped by religion. He sat in a religious environment surrounded by religious people and religious activity for the better part of 40 years, and he remained lame. And he remained a beggar, hopeless in the religion was in the face of bringing any real change into his life. And the Bible teaches that every single one of us is born into this world broken and crippled in sinners. We are born without any hope in and of ourselves of ever releasing ourselves from the lameness and the brokenness of that spiritual condition. We are born unable to walk with God, and that's a worse condition than being born lame in our feet physically. 
We are born unable to walk in his ways, unable to experience the joy of ever doing so in and of ourselves. And the Bible teaches that in that ancient garden of Eden, our father Adam experienced a great fall through his sin, and his lameness has been passed on to every one of us. And each of us are born into this world, the Bible teaches, as sinners as a result, separated from God and the relationship with God that we've been created for. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, is how Paul put it in writing to the Romans. And like this beggar, we're unable to pay the debt required for the forgiveness of our sins, as Paul wrote to those same Romans, for the wages of sin is death. But just as this man was saved from his broken, crippled physical condition by believing the offer that Peter extended to him on Jesus' behalf. So, too, the Bible teaches that each one of us can be forgiven of our sins and made into a new creation by putting our faith in Jesus' offer of salvation to us. And Jesus himself declared, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And when a person is born again, we now have the ability to walk with God and in his ways and to leap for joy and to praise God, for it is God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. These are wonderful truths. These are wonderful realities, all of them pictured in a physical way in this man's life, but these are our realities as Christians in a physical sense, and it's our daily portion. It's a miracle, and it's wonderful, and hallelujah to the Lord for doing so in our lives. Jesus will never leave a man or woman in the same condition that he finds us in. He will never leave us in that condition. And that is great news for the person who realizes one day that the greatest need of their life is not for more money or even for more religion, but to know God and to walk in his ways and to have my life changed in a way that I've tried to change for 40 years and found myself unable to do so. And if that's you this morning, God will perform this greatest of miracles in your life, and it's the greatest miracle that any human being can ever experience to receive the forgiveness of your sins, to come in, for him to come into your life and make you into a person you never dreamed possible and lead you into a life that you never thought possible. And there is hope for you. And there is hope for change, and there is hope for healing. There's hope of being a new creation. And that hope is found because of the introduction of Jesus into human history, in his birth, in his life, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Everything can change for you today. And that is a wonderful message to deliver with God's authority 
Peter made this offer of physical healing to this man, and as a Christian, I am and we are commissioned to make an even greater offer to every single person in this world, the offer of salvation, forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, and the possibility of becoming a new creation. It is a tremendous invitation, and it is the invitation of God, your Creator, to you today. There is hope for you, hope for change, and it is found in faith in Christ. The interesting thing about this miracle, one of the interesting things about this miracle of the healing of the lame man is that it's so great a miracle, uh, so obvious of a miracle, that it tends to, as we read it, to use up all of the oxygen in the room, so to speak, all of the oxygen within the passage. But I think it's important to realize that it is not the first miracle within the passage. It is but the second miracle. There is a miracle that occurs here that preceded the miracle of the healing. The healing of the lame man was the second miracle. What then was the first miracle? The first miracle occurred when Peter received revelation from God that God wanted to heal this man. And it probably occurred in the form of a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom from the Holy Spirit, probably a gift of faith thrown in as well. We understand in our study of the Scriptures that Peter didn't stop and heal every lame person that he ran into. He didn't even stop and heal every lame person that he ran into at the gates that led to the entrance of the temple in ancient Jerusalem. It is by a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit let Peter know that God wanted to heal this man, and he did so through that word of knowledge. What is a word of knowledge? It's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that's listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, one of the gifts that God gives to his people for his purposes in this world. The word of knowledge occurs when God reveals to you a piece of knowledge you could not otherwise know except by divine revelation. In the New Testament, when the Lord revealed the sin of Ananias to the apostle Peter later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, he did that and he said, Ananias, Peter spoke, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Ananias had done it secretly. No other human being but his wife knew of it, but God knew all about it, and he revealed it to Peter in order to protect the purity of the early church. And here God reveals to Peter that he's going to heal this man, a word of knowledge in play, but also a word of wisdom. And a word of wisdom is when God gives a person, a Christian, supernatural wisdom for a given situation. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. And so Peter has the word of knowledge from God of his desire to heal this man. But God then gives Peter the wisdom for how to go about it, what to say to the man, what to do to the man. And thus Peter declares, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And then further he took the man by the right hand and he lifted him up. I'll tell you, I think that also in play, as I mentioned, was a gift of faith 
involved in all of this. And the gift of faith also listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is a supernatural faith that God will give you if he's asking you to do something that is beyond the realm of normal faith. It's the kind of thing where we look back on a situation later in life and we can't believe that we did that for God. But it was because God gave us the supernatural faith to do it at the moment. And with this gift, the human impossibility of what God is calling us to do is supernaturally overwhelmed with a great and unshakable faith in God. And clearly, this was also working in the situation as well as the gift of the working of miracles. I remember very vividly my first exposure to the gifts of the Holy Spirit as a new Christian at Calvary Chapel in Napa 35 years ago. I remember the first afterglow, very fondly, the first afterglow that Karen and I attended and the first exposure to these things of the Holy Spirit. And Karen and I left that afterglow, and all of it was absolutely brand new to us as Christians. And we walked away, and I remember Karen said, what did you think about that? And I said, I don't understand all of it, but I believe in it. I believe God was in what we were in the middle of there tonight. I remember the first time I saw God speak through a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom and a gift of faith in a public setting like it occurs in our passage here in Acts chapter 3. When I went street witnessing as a brand-new Christian with a gentleman by the name of Jim, and it was in Napa, California, and we began at my house, which was in the southern cross street off of the southern end of a street called Jefferson Street in Napa, which is the main drag of, of Napa, California. And we walked the length of it, and we witnessed to every single person that we ran into. We might have even witnessed to a couple of telephone poles. We wanted everybody to know about Christ, and we'd gone out to tell them uh, about God's good news. And at that time in Napa, the hot spot for people to hang out was in the parking lot at McDonald's on the northern end of Jefferson Street, and they had a large parking lot in the front of that McDonald's, and so people would park all of their hot cars and everything and then just hang out. And I remember we walked up into that parking lot and there was a group of young guys, high school age, junior college age. We began to share the gospel with them. And the man that I was with, a man by the name of Jim, looked straight at one of the guys, and with a word of knowledge, he began to reveal to him what was happening personally in his life, how he had just experienced a painful breakup with his girlfriend, how it had affected him emotionally, what he was going through, what was going through his mind. And he began to reveal several things like that, but that the Lord loved him and wanted to save him. And I'm standing there with Jim, and I'm thinking to myself, Jim, what in the world are you doing? We are out here sharing the gospel. We know that's the truth, but I think you're taking a ridiculous risk here. This is why they are sent out in two, so people like me can bring great faith. You know, the guys like Jim as they're out there street witnessing. And I just think this is the riskiest thing in the world because, Jim, if you are wrong, and this guy says, what in the world are you talking about? You guys are kooks. Then we're going to look like kooks in front of everyone. 
So these are the things that we're going through. In my mind, why take the chance? Who needs to take the risk? Who needs the aggravation? And the interesting thing is that everything that Jim had spoken to that young man was true, and you should have seen his face. You could have pushed him over with a feather. And that young man, in front of all of his peers, in that very cool environment, at least at that time in Napa, California, stood and he gave his life to the Lord right there in that parking lot. The Christian life is a supernatural life. It has always been that. It's always intended to be that, not just on a church level, not just on a macro level, but on an individual level, the individual life of every single Christian. And we cannot make these kind of things happen as Christians. We can't force God to uh, give us a gift of healing. We can't force him to give us a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. These things come from the Holy Spirit at his pleasure. But we should always be sensitive to his promptings in our lives as Christians. And his promptings are valuable things. You can be praying for someone in the morning or in the evening or in the course of the day, and the Lord gives you a verse that comes to your mind. You know you would never think of that verse in a hundred years, but it's come to your mind in praying for that person. And there's that clear understanding that this verse needs to make its way into the hands, the heart and the mind of the person that you've been praying for. And so you text it to them or you email it to them or you snail mail it to them or whatever means of doing that, and they get it, and it's exactly what they needed to hear from God. The Lord might prompt you to send a card of appreciation to someone for their walk with the Lord or their service to the Lord. And you have no idea that they're discouraged. You have no idea what's going on in their life. You know, have no idea that they're contemplating quick, quitting their ministry in the children's ministry or wherever it, it might be. And then, and, and, and then this card comes to them that you send a verse or an encouragement, a word of encouragement to them, and it helps them to regain perspective and to continue on. Sometimes the Lord can prompt you just out of nowhere, even a Scot, even the miserliest of, of people, and not all Scots are misers, by the way. But God can prompt you to give a sum of money to someone. You have no idea what the need is in their life. He hasn't revealed any of that to you. There's just the prompting, and so you do it, and it's exactly what was needed for the situation. And as valuable as the money is to that person and their need, it pales in comparison to when they receive that money, they also receive the realization that God knows, that God understands, God's aware of my circumstances, and he's involved in my life, and things are going to be okay, and that supernatural encouragement of their faith in God and in his love. Sometimes you can be at a mall, or sometimes you can be at a bus stop, 
and here are how many people coming and going. You think about a major city where you've got subways and jammed and humanity moving wherever it's moving. And somehow God, the Holy Spirit, puts your focus on someone that you would never otherwise notice. I mean, here they are as vanilla as can be in life, as easy to overlook in life, and yet somehow your eyes are fixed upon them. And with the sense that you're to go to them and to speak to them of the fact that God loves them or to share the gospel with them. And these are wonderful promptings and wonderful promptings of the Lord to step out. And so many times I've had that happen within my life. And then to go, I'm as much into self-preservation and into image and not making a mistake and not looking like a fool as anybody else is. But the prompting is so strong that, you know, if I disobey it, I'll be disobeying the voice of the Lord. And then we do it, and sometimes somebody will begin to weep. There'll be an evidence that this was of the Lord. Sometimes no evidence at all because God's going to follow up what he had us do with another person later on in the day and then someone else a week from now and this whole process of bringing someone into a relationship with him. Heeding God's promptings always leads to good things for the kingdom of God. And it does here. Because this miracle of this revelation from God to Peter, this prompting of the Holy Spirit, of what he wanted to do in this man, then led to the miracle. But the miracle then resulted in another sermon that Peter is going to preach before the end of this chapter, and 5,000 people are going to end up being saved. We never know where a prompting of the Holy Spirit is going to lead. We never know the power of obedience to a simple, single prompting and just the, the life of a single saint on the face of this planet. On September 23rd in 1857, a Christian man named Jeremy Lanfear. He started a lunchtime prayer meeting in a rented hall in New York City after being prompted by the Holy Spirit to do so. The United States at that time was in spiritual and political and economic decline and desperately in need of prayer. And on that first day of that prayer meeting that he put together in that rented hall and let people know to come and under the prompting of the Holy Spirit, six people came. But then the Bank of Philadelphia failed, and the number swelled to 40, who then asked that this prayer meeting would be, uh, become a daily uh, noontime prayer meeting. And then on October 10th, the stock market crashed in the United States of America, and suddenly people began to flock to the prayer meetings. And within six months, 10,000 people were gathering daily for prayer in New York City alone at lunchtime. And the prayer meetings then spread to Chicago and Louisville and Cleveland and St. Louis. And this single prompting of the Holy Spirit in but one single Christian's life led to what became, is, is known historically, spiritually in the United States as the Third Awakening. It was the first revival to begin in the United States to then move into the rest of the world. Let me say again, never ever ignore a prompting of the Holy Spirit 
to do anything that he tells you and me to do. There is always a reason for it, and good things always happen as a result. And the Christian life is a supernatural life that includes he heeding the promptings of the Holy Spirit, obeying those promptings. We know as we look at the book of Acts that there would be no book of Acts apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. But it is equally true that there would be no book of Acts apart from a group of Christians alive at that time in human history who were willing to hear the promptings of God in their life and then to obey them, whatever the cost might be. And doing so always leads to good things for the kingdom of God and for the blessing and edification of others. And I would like to encourage us as a church body, but also individually, to heed and to obey every prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Good things will be the result. All of this may be entirely brand new to you as a new Christian or the things of the Holy Spirit new to you. Expect God to prompt you in the next week or two to do something for his glory and then to bear witness to that prompting that this is from him and you will know that you know that you know that you know that this is something that he's calling you to do and then to obey that and then begin a lifestyle of it. And then I think how important it is for us to be reminded, those of us who've walked with the Lord for five years and 10 years and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years, to be reminded of the power of God's promptings. And so often we relegate these things to the early chapter of our Christian life. We've experienced them. We've been on both sides of them. We've given the encouragements. We've received the encouragements. We don't need to be sold on how important it is, how powerful it is, and yet there's something about our own self-preservation or whatever it might be that we find ourselves then settling into a place in our Christian life where we just readily ignore these promptings week after week and month after month until we get confronted with a passage like this that forces us to remember how beautiful that life is, how important those promptings have been to us and the hearts of others when the encouragement came our way or the direction, and then to realize that it's just important that it flows from us and then to them. What amazing potential each and every day that the world wakes up to as the sun rises in one part of the world and it sets in another part of the world, but as it's constantly rising in some part of the world and waking up a whole new group of Christians in that part of the world today to realize the power and the potential that is behind just a single prompting of the Holy Spirit and then to long for that and to be open to that and then as God gives us those promptings to obey them and then to possibly see before our very eyes what God has in mind or sometimes it is something that just happens at that moment and then 
God is going to add to it in other ways in that per person's life in order to bring the full power of it to their life. But it could never happen without our obedience to our prompting. It is an amazing thing to stop and look at a passage like this, to think about the testimony of Mr. Lamphere, a Christian 150 years ago, and to realize that the power and the potential of a prompting in our life is no less significant in the hand of the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful, exciting, amazing life we get to live. And in the midst of all of the greatness of the need that is around us, so often we look at the world and we throw our hands up in the air and we think, what can I do? I'm just a single person. I'm just one person. In order for us to change this city or to change the state or the nation or the world, it's going to require great organization and mighty men with great reputations to set up some massive structure in order to accomplish something and even make a dent in the spiritual darkness of the world that we're in. And if we convince ourselves of the fact that that is true, we will talk ourselves out of the most powerful thing that occurs every single day in this world, and that is what is the Holy Spirit doing through the greatness and the largeness and the beauty and the diversity of his people and his body all around the world. And then what happens is we individually hear God's voice and then obey those promptings. That's the need of the world. That's the need of our family. That's the need of our neighborhood and our city. And that's the power and the potential of every single Christian in the hands of the Holy Spirit in the world today. Don't wait for some massive move of the Holy Spirit to think that's where the deliverance will come, that's where the change will come. It comes through simply hearing the promptings of God, whatever they might be, and then obeying them. And what an exciting life it is to live. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and you would like to be healed and saved from the lameness and the brokenness of your spiritual condition from Adam and Eve, God would long to do that and love to do that for you today. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service and they would love to pray with you to receive the greatest miracle that a person can experience in life, and that is to be born again by the Holy Spirit and begin a personal relationship with God. And it's all there for the asking and for the receiving. Whatever your need might be in your life this morning, these same men and women would love to pray with you and to pray for you as well. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would fall fresh upon each of us this morning in the light and in the beauty 
of the truth that is found in this passage. And Lord, we want to, as a church in this community and this little part of your world, this morning to commit in a fresh way to you, to obey your promptings when you give them to us. We don't want this to be a sermon that is soon forgotten and forgotten as soon as reaching the front seat of our cars. But, Lord, we recognize the power and the potential of but what a, one single Christian listening to your Holy Spirit. And we want to have a part in that, in what you're doing, Lord, in the world today. And so give us a supernatural sensitivity to the leading and the promptings of your Holy Spirit. When they occur, Lord, give us the gift of faith to then obey that prompting, whatever the cost, for your glory. And, Lord, for the blessing and for the good of the kingdom of God and for the blessing and the encouragement and the good of mankind who is all around us every single day and to whom our heart is so big in love. We pray, Lord, that you would use this in some way as a part of our loving you with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Samuel, would you close us?